We'll hear an argument next in Burton versus Stewart. Mr. Fisher. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Shart versus Payne, the Ninth Circuit opinion that first decided the question that's before you today, the Ninth Circuit said, and I'm quoting, the rule of Blakely that the statutory maximum is the maximum sentence a judge may impose solely on the basis of the facts reflected in the jury verdict was not clear until the Blakely decision itself. The Ninth Circuit is simply wrong. In this Court's Apprendi decision, it laid down precisely that rule. At page 483 of that decision, this Court described the statutory maximum concept as, quote, the maximum a defendant would receive if punished according to the facts reflected in the jury verdict alone. Virtually the identical language. Mr. Fisher, as, you know, assuming we read it the, the, the way you read it, I've got a, a basic problem that doesn't really surface until you get to the end of the briefs, and I wonder if you would comment on it at the beginning of the argument. And that is, or I'll put it in the form of a question, uh, is, the, is the decision uh, which the judge makes here to sentence consecutively uh, rather than concurrently a decision that requires the finding of any fact about the commission of the crimes themselves or the circumstances of those crimes or about the defendant's character. Does the judge have to make, or does the fact, some fact finder, have to make a finding on any of those subjects, crimes, circumstances, character of, of the, the defendant? Yes, he does, Justice. What is that fact? It's precisely the same kind of fact that the judge had to find in Blakely itself. Under the Washington, uh, Revised Code of Washington, the statute, the statute for running sentences consecutively in the fashion that Mr. Burton's were run consecutively refers a judge back to the very same provision that was at issue in Blakely itself, which is the aggravating factors provision of Washington, which was formally codified uh, at Section 390 and is now codified at Section 400. In but I, I thought the only fact that had to be found was that given the, um, the, the classification sentencing scheme Washington had, there would be, in effect, a free crime, no incremental punishment, unless there were consecutive sentencing. And that's not a fact that falls within any of those categories of crime, character, or circumstances. That wouldn't be a ju- fact, Justice Souter, but that is not the way that Washington law works. It is colloquially known as the free crime aggravator. But in the, in the Washington Supreme Court's decision in Hughes, which is cited at the end of our reply brief, the Washington Supreme Court made clear that to invoke that aggravator, a court has to find that there's extraordinarily serious culpability or extraordinarily uh, serious harm that so accompanies the multiple offenses. So it's a misnomer to say it's a mere cre- free crime criterion. It's free crime plus That's some right. further fact. That's right. And this Court's decision — I'm sorry, the, the Washington Supreme Court decision in Hughes — clearly lays that out. And if you have any doubt about the way that consecutive sentences work in Washington, I want to give you one other citation to a new Washington Court of Appeals decision that considers consecutive sentences imposed exactly the same way that Mr. Burton's was. That is to say, they are run consecutively based on the clearly too lenient factor. That case is called State versus Washington, and it was just reported at 143 P. 3rd 606. 143 P. 3rd, 606. The Washington Court of Appeals in that case, considering a sentence just like Mr. Burton's, says that uh, it does trigger and violate Blakely. Uh, so it's a lot, the, the extra fact then is a lot like the sort of heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravator. I mean, it's, it's comparable to it. Exactly. It's part of the same list. And as this Court said 
in Apprendi itself that extra culpability, uh, which is one of the one of the ways this this aggravator can be met, is is, is the quintessential type of element that needs to be proven beyond a reasonable. When you doubt. say extra culpability. Do you mean the the nature of the crime? I, I, suppose there are three crimes all committed at the same time: murder, uh, rape, and kidnapping. They're all very serious crimes, and if you sentence them consecutively you will take into account that there were three. If you sentence them concurrently, it doesn't matter. And the Washington court says we're not just looking to the fact that murder or rape or kidnapping are serious. We're looking to, to sentence consecutively if you do more than that. You have to look to see that the kidnapping was a special kind of kidnapping. That's right, Justice Breyer. In section, the current section is Section 589 of the Washington Code, and it says that sentences shall run, concur- shall run concurrently. Unless the judge makes an extra finding of exactly the same type that the judge is required to find in Blakely. And if you look at Blakely itself, remember, Blakely involved concurrent sentences. And so what Washington is doing is saying all sentences should run concurrently unless there's an extra fact, something about the additional crimes that would otherwise be running concurrently that simply requires the judge to go above and beyond the ordinary concurrent sentences and punish those crimes separately. But could the nature of the additional crimes themselves satisfy it? In other words, could the judge say, uh, well, all three of them, it might be one thing if one was serious and, and the other two were trivial, but all of these three are very serious. Now, that's, in effect, a value judgment, not a finding of discrete fact. Could that value judgment satisfy the extraordinary criterion that Washington says there must be in addition to free crime? No, it couldn't. And the Washington decision that I've cited to you will help you with this because it makes it clear that to to trigger an aggravator to run sentences concurrently, just as under Blakely itself, it has to be something above and beyond the elements of the crime or the crimes themselves. So it can't simply be... I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. It can't simply be that there were three crimes committed and all three of them are very serious. It has to be something about the crime, the additional crimes, that takes it above and beyond the ordinary commission of that crime. But, Mr. Fisher, even if it's true that there are other examples out there that might qualify for that example, it's not true of this case. I'm not sure I follow just. In this particular case, there was a ne- there w- it was necessary to make an additional finding of fact, even though there may be cases out there in which you could get uh, consecutive sentences without an additional finding of fact. That, you're certainly right that in this case you needed to have an extra finding of fact. There are some situations under the Washington Code, and I believe in the majority of other states, where it is up to the judge's discretion whether to run sentences concurrently, and he could do it for the reasons that Justice Souter described. And so what Washington does in its respondent's brief is it cites these other state decisions from other states that simply have different, different sentencing systems than we have sure in Washington. I understand that. I mean, we have not held, for example, that the fact of a prior conviction is something that has to be submitted to a jury under Blakely. Why, if you're determining that sentences run consecutively, isn't that just the same as looking at a simultaneous conviction and saying they're going to run consecutively? In an or- in some, under some state systems, that, that might be the case, Mr. Chief Justice. However, in Washington, the way that the code works is that judges are directed that for multiple crimes, the sentences shall run consecutively. I'm sorry, so you'd concurrently, have unless they make the, the exact kind of extra finding, and it refers them to the precise same statute that was at issue in Blakely itself. And you're saying that that extra finding can't simply be that this is a conviction for a particular serious crime that's going to go unpunished otherwise? That's right. And, so and I re- that under this system, if you had a regime where if you're convicted of murder and you've been convicted of rape before that, you get 
an enhanced sentence beyond the normal murder sentence, that would not uh, contravene Blakely. But if you're convicted at the same time for rape and murder and you, those two sentences run consecutively, you say that that does violate Blakely. If, if a judge needs to make an extra finding beyond the elements of either of those two crimes to run them consecutively, then it would violate Blakely. But we've never held that. We've never held a consecutive — that the treatment of sentences as concurrent or consecutive is covered by Blakely. You haven't had a case in the Apprendi-Blakely line of cases dealing with consecutive sentences. But what you've done is laid down a rule and from the very state that we're dealing with here that says that if a judge needs to make an extra finding beyond the elements of the crimes of conviction uh, and beyond uh, the facts encompassed in the jury's finding of guilt for those crimes, then that's, those findings need to be proved to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why in this case — that line is, uh, that rule is triggered. Uh, the Ninth Circuit, of course, didn't talk about any of this. What it said, as I mentioned, is that it simply took Apprendi to be a purely formalistic rule uh, that had nothing to do with the facts according to the jury verdict, but just had to do with whatever the state happened to label as the statutory maximum. In Apprendi, this court said not once but three times that the statutory maximum concept was triggered according to the facts encompassed in the jury verdict. And like the Washington courts, the Ninth Circuit simply ignored that language from this court's opinion. Unless there be any doubt uh, about the way that concept mapped onto this case, this court said in Apprendi itself that the relevant inquiry was not one of form but one of effect. Does the required finding take, uh, take a defendant to a higher sentence level than would otherwise be permissible based on the facts encompassed in the jury verdict? Mr. Fisher, there's another uh, potential impediment in this case, and I, I would like you to comment on it, and that is the uh, petition from the sentence. It was second in time. There was a prior petition that challenged just the conviction, and under the governing statute, to have a second petition, you've got to get permission from the Court of Appeals, and it has to meet stringent criteria. How do you get past that, that you, you, we are now concentrating on the petition addressed to the sentence, which is a second petition? This is the very first petition that Mr. Burton has filed against the 1998 judgment. He did file earlier a petition against the original judgment of 1994. In the joint appendix at page 34, that's where that petition is reprinted. He says quite clearly that he's challenging the 1994 judgment in that petition, whereas here this is his first petition against the 1998 judgment. But then you, you are bifurcating the judgment in a criminal case, which is not the sentence. You're saying there's an earlier judgment, and looking at it as we would if it were a civil case, if you have a determination of liability, that doesn't give you a final judgment. The judgment will come at the end of the case when damages are determined. That's right, Justice Ginsburg. And if what the state is saying is, is, is correct, which is to say that the, we don't have any judgment at all until the sentence is final, then all you get from that is that the, Mr. Burton's first petition should have been dismissed and the court could have gotten it dismissed. 
But we submit what you can't do from that is retroactively change the first petition that he explicitly told the court was against the 1994 judgment and that he told the court in that same filing on, on JA 35 and JA 40 that his, that his sentence was still on direct review. You can't retroactively change that challenge to the 1994 judgment into one against the 1998 judgment for two reasons. One is, is that if the state is right, the district court wouldn't have, wouldn't have had jurisdiction under that 1998 to challenge against the 1998 judgment either, because as Mr. Burton forthrightly told the court, that sentence was still on direct review. But even if you could get past that, we submit that this court's Castro decision simply doesn't allow a court, especially retroactively, to recharacterize a habeas petition that the petitioner himself said was against one judgment as against another. So you the think there can, judge, always, there can always be two petitions when a sentence is on review? No, there can't, Justice Kennedy. And so what should have happened, if, according to the state's theory, is that this first petition should, should, should simply have been dismissed. But is that also but, your theory? I, I think that's probably — this Court hasn't, hasn't laid down a solid but are, decision, you, but I think that's a better us, reading. Are you asking us to say that while the sentence is still under the review, there can be no habeas petition filed? Am I asking I mean, you — Why isn't that up the option of the, of the petitioner? He can take his chances or he can wait. I, I think that is a fair characterization, Justice Kennedy. But what Mr. Burton did is he went to the district court saying, I'm challenging the 1994 judgment. And as I was saying, under Castro, before that gets recharacterized — I'm asking if it's your position whether or not he properly can do that. I don't think so. Uh, but I'm just recognizing that that's a jurisdictional question that this Court would, would decide for itself. Uh, but assuming that he can't do that, what the district court would have had to say is, we're, Mr. Burton, you're not allowed to challenge the 1994 judgment. And, uh, and, and let's assume for the moment that he could have challenged the 1998 judgment. The district judge would have said, now, Mr. Burton, you're only challenging your conviction for the 1994 judgment. You need to wait until you're ready to challenge your sentence, and then you can challenge the 1998 judgment. Presumably, and this is, I think, a fair inference, especially from the petition itself as it's reprinted, since he told the district court that he was challenging his sentence. If he was told that he couldn't bring it at that time, he would have said, okay, I'll withdraw it and wait until I can challenge my sentence. But if the first proceeding was not, in fact, jurisdictionally barred, uh, then you would lose under the second and successive objection in this case, right? I, I don't know that we would, Justice Souter. Well, because, why not? Because it's a common rule that this Court hasn't had a case exactly like this, but the lower courts do all the time. And the, and the, the, the Fourth Circuit case in Taylor, which I've cited in the reply brief, is one of them, where it's a common practice for a petitioner to bring one petition against a judgment and then be partially successful and then bring a new petition against something in the new judgment. And that's essentially what happened here. And it makes but, it but like — But aren't those cases in which the first judgment is complete, he simply does not attack everything that was a predicate for the first judgment? And then if there is, in fact, a new trial and a new judgment, of course, the, the, the habeas possibility arises again, whereas in this case — uh, the, the first judgment was not complete. No, you've put your finger on it, exactly. And so, but we still think that, that, that either the court had jurisdiction or it didn't. And if it had jurisdiction, then it must be fallen somehow into the category that Is that necessarily about. true? Isn't it also possible that the, at the time of the first judgment, the judge could have said, well, you really haven't exhausted your remedies because it's not final until the whole thing's over. And, but nevertheless, because exhaustion is not a jurisdictional uh, matter, I'm going to go ahead and decide it. 
Could, could the district judge have done that? Yeah. I think what would have needed to happen here, since Mr. Burton, at pages 35 and 40 of the Joint Appendix, told the district judge, I'm still challenging my sentence on direct appeal. Uh, under Oedipa and customary comedy principles, the judge would have needed to say, you need to either renounce that appeal from the state court or renounce this one. Uh, you couldn't do both at the same time. Mr. Burton, if he had wanted to, I think it's fair to say, could have gone into district court and said, I now have a new judgment, and I'm going to challenge my conviction and sentence because I have no intention of challenging my sentence uh, through, this, through, through state court proceedings. And perhaps he could have done that. Uh, but but, but that would be a very different situation than what we have here. If I can turn back to the not-a-new-rule question, uh, another angle at this is not simply to look at the text of this Court's opinion in Apprendi, which we submit told a state court in this situation all it would have needed to know. Uh, but it also perhaps is helpful to look behind that and look at the statutes that were in play in New Jersey and in Washington. Uh, and, and even if you did that, it becomes, we submit, very clear that a district judge, any reasonable trial judge, that is, would have known uh, that Apprendi applied here. Uh, what you had in New Jersey was essentially two statutes, one that said an ordinary commission of a crime is punishable up to 10 years, and a second statute that said if you commit that crime with some kind of extra, extra bad circumstance, there a hate crime, uh, then you, get, you can get a higher sentence. Exactly the same thing was true in Washington. We had one statute that said this is what the this is what the punishment is for the ordinary commission of this crime. And we had an extra statute that said, but if you commit that crime with extra bad circumstances, and here the only difference is there was a list of circumstances, not just a single one. Uh, but if you commit the, the crime with extra circumstances, then you can get extra punishment. And the analogy uh, that the respondents want to draw between the Washington sentencing system and the federal guidelines just simply doesn't hold up. So uh, you think uh, Blakely was not a new rule, but Booker was? I think that's fair to say, Mr. Chief Justice, because in Blakely, all you needed to do was apply Apprendi, which said that if you have two different statutory thresholds, the pertinent threshold for Sixth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment purposes is the one uh, that, that, that cabins the judge's discretion based on the facts in the jury verdict. To decide Booker, this Court had to take the term statutory maximum and apply that to a different type of uh, of, of threshold, which was, as this Court put it, uh, a court rule or a quasi-legislative enactment. Uh, so under, under the system that, uh, that this Court reviewed in Booker, you had only a single true statutory maximum, and then you had to decide whether the Apprendi principle ought to be in play uh, for the federal sentencing guidelines. And, and if there were any confusion on that, a trial judge could have looked at Apprendi itself, where this Court and Justice Thomas's concurrence made clear that there was a unique status of the federal sentencing guidelines that made it a more difficult question. However, here we, uh, we didn't have anything like that. We had just a simple situation where there were two statutes, one, one maximum for the ordinary crime, and then an additional maximum for the crime being committed with, with, with aggravating circumstances. And so it was a very clear map on. Uh, and that's what this Court said in Blakely, of course. It said it didn't break any new ground in the decision in Blakely. It simply said that took the state's argument and it rejected it by saying our precedents on this point are clear. Uh, and it just simply quoted the Apprendi language that the statutory maximum for Sixth and Fourteenth Amendment purposes is the maximum that a, that a defendant may receive based on the facts in the jury verdict alone. There were decisions going the other way. There were lower court decisions? Yes. Yes, there were. And, and I think if we want to talk about these, it's important first 
to be clear about what we're talking about. There were there was a Supreme Court of Kansas that had looked to the relevant language in, in, in Apprendi and decided that its sentencing guideline system could not stand. Uh, and then you had on the other side uh, the Supreme Court of Washington and the Supreme Court of Oregon and a couple of other state intermediate courts, uh, I think some in unpublished decisions, that had gone the other way. But I think it's very telling, Justice Ginsburg, if you want to look at those state Supreme, I'm sorry, those state Supreme Court and lower court decisions because none of them, not a single one, quotes Apprendi or even acknowledges the passages in Apprendi that said the test is not one of form but of effect, and that the several passages in Apprendi that said that the statutory maximum was the maximum allowed based on the facts in the jury verdict. So once you take those into account, we submit, as the Kansas Supreme Court realized, there's only one conclusion that you can reach. Uh, the only way those lower courts were, were able to come to a contrary decision was simply to pluck out uh, pluck out other sentences of Apprendi and not acknowledge the rest of the opinion. Uh, and, of course, the rest of the opinion where this Court has these passages, at pages 483, page 482, are the, are, are the absolute guts, building blocks of the, of the opinion itself. It's where the Court canvasses the historical rule that was incorporated into our constitutional system. And so it's not as though that's some sort of dicta or loose language that this Court had in its opinion. It was the very guts of the holding of Apprendi. And, and we submit that in a Teague analysis where you are indeed supposed to look uh, to whether a reasonable jurist would have found something, uh, not just the fact that they exist, but whether a reasonable jurist would have reached a given conclusion. Once you take the whole of Apprendi into account, there was only one conclusion that a reasonable jurist could have come to. I suppose that doesn't make the dissenters in Blakely feel very good. <laughs> well, Justice Kennedy, I think, if, uh, as I understand the dissents in, uh, in Blakely, uh, the dissents in Blakely primarily were saying that Apprendi itself was a bad idea and that Apprendi really wasn't dictated by the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments. Uh, I see almost nothing, in fact, really nothing, in the dissents of Blakely itself that says, taking Apprendi as the law, we can distinguish it from the facts in this case. There was nothing of that in the dissents. Of course, you had to show that the, the result was dictated by the prior precedent. That's a, that's a, a, a strong phrase. We said it uh, Stringer, Stringer versus Black. Um, but if it has a new application, that's, that's, that's new, even th though the principle was the same. I think the Stringer test is helpful because there, of course, this, this Court said that one of its prior decisions was not a new rule because even though there was a different state sentencing system that was slightly different before the Court in the subsequent case, uh, the principle from the prior case dictated only one result. And I think once we go back to the dissents, in Blakely, and compare them, let's say, with the dissents in Booker, uh, on the merits, that is, in Booker, I think, again, it's telling because the dissenters in Blakely had nothing to say in terms of a possible way to distinguish one case from the other, whereas in Booker, uh, the dissents did point out that we don't have to extend it this far. We could, say, we could limit it to true statutes and not go this far. So there is a difference. Uh, and, and really with this case, I think one way to phrase it in terms of what it comes down to is whether when this Court lays a decision down like a plen Apprendi that has a clear rule and lots of historical robust reasoning behind it saying why we're, why we're adopting a certain rule, whether it is up to the lower courts, this, in, in this case the state courts, to second-guess this Court and say, well, I don't know if the Court really means what it says, uh, as Justice Breyer letter, letter put it in the, in the Blakely dissent. Uh, we think uh, that we submit what this Court should say is that when we say something is the law that lower courts ought to assume that's the law, at least until we tell them somehow uh, that the law is different. 
If there are no more questions on the new rule, I will I'll quickly address uh, the watershed argument, because if for some reason this Court adopted the State's view that really all Apprendi was was a highly formalistic rule about what is a statutory maximum, uh, and, that, and that just simply by labeling courts could have evaded it, we think that Blakely itself then has to be considered a watershed exception, a watershed uh, rule. And the reason why is because is because of an error that runs throughout the state's brief. And the state's position is basically that this can't be watershed because Apprendi and Blakely deal with circumstances where a defendant has already been convicted of a crime and all we're considering is what sentence ought to be imposed. But, of course, that, that contravenes the very holding of Apprendi and Blakely, which is to remedy the fact that the defendant is being sentenced for a greater crime than the jury actually found him guilty of. This, so ar- in that this, argument, this argument assumes that we rule against you on whether or not it's a new rule. I think that's right, Mr. Don't you have to ad- Don't you have to address EDPA before we get to that question? In the watershed realm? In other words, it doesn't matter if it's a watershed. I guess it's a point of argument, but it, it's not clear that it matters whether it's a watershed rule if you read EDPA 2254-D1 by its terms. If this Court concluded in the Wharton case that that watershed did not survive EDPA, then, of course, you're right. Watershed doesn't, uh, can't get us home here. But I, but as this case comes to the Court, as I understand it, this Court is considering this case in a posture that it really dealt with in Horn versus Banks, where it said that even post-EDPA, what, what, a, what a court is supposed to do is conduct a, what it's called, what this court termed a threshold Teague inquiry as to whether Teague is satisfied. And of course, in Horn, this court mentioned the watershed uh, exception itself. So we think that, uh, that what this court should really do is address that, that threshold question to the extent it needs to holistically. And if there are no more questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Fisher. Mr. Collins. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to begin where Justice Ginsburg began with the issue of successive petitions. We believe that the petition before this Court is a successive petition barred under EDPA. Now, my brother, Mr. Fisher, says that it's not a successive petition because the first petition challenged the 1994 judgment. But that's simply not correct as a matter of of the facts of this case. A new judgment was entered in March of 1998. That judgment was entered as a result of Mr. Burton's conviction being affirmed and his sentence being reversed. So when he was in custody, when he filed his first petition, he was in custody pursuant to that amended judgment. So that's the only judgment that could be attacked on habeas. Exactly, Your Honor. So he has an amended judgment filed in March of 1998. He files his first petition, challenging his conviction under that petition. Later, in 2002, he files a second petition, challenging his sentence. It doesn't matter. I'm looking at Joint Appendix, page 34, date of judgment of conviction. He puts in December 16, 1994. He does put that in, Your Honor, but I don't think that's determinative. If you take a look at page 35 on question 8, um, they say, did you appeal from the judgment of conviction? Answer, yes. If you did appeal, answer the following. And it r- lays out the facts that he appealed, that his conviction was affirmed, that his sentence was reversed, and then a new judgment is entered in March of 1998. He is not in custody pursuant to the 1994 judgment. He is in where, where, does it, where does it say a new judgment was issued in March of 98? Uh, Your Honor, that's in the, um, 
That's in the joint appendix at page 3, which shows that — I thought you meant it was in his petition. No, no. It wasn't in his petition, Your Honor. But it doesn't seem — the fact that he was looking back at his conviction, original conviction, being 1994, and that's what he wrote down, doesn't mean that that was the conviction and that was the judgment under which he was in custody, because it simply wasn't. The original 1994 judgment uh, no longer existed because a new judgment had been entered. So because, and I, I don't think, I think what we, what we disagree about in this is which judgment, if the first petition went to the first, to the 1994 judgment and the second petition went to the 1998 judgment, then uh, we would agree with Mr. Fisher that it's not successive. On the other hand, I believe I heard him say that if you agree with us that the only judgment in existence at the time he filed his petition was the 1998 judgment, then he's filed a successive petition with regard to that judgment. One in 19, December of 1998, dealing with the conviction. A second in 2002, dealing with the sentence. So since it's a successive petition and Mr. Burton did not go through the, the gatekeeping function that EDPA requires, um, there is no — the district court had no jurisdiction, and subsequently we believe that this court does not have jurisdiction. Is so going the, back I, to — the, the fact is we're looking at page 34, right, 34 of the joint appendix, and that is the first petition that was filed. Is that right? That's correct, Your Honor. All right. So, so you look at it. It says filed December 28th, and maybe this is just what you said, but — and it says date of judgment of conviction, December 16, 1994. So looking at that, you'd think that's what he was attacking. Where does it say he's attacking anything else? Well, Your Honor, it doesn't say he's attacking anything else, but the problem with that is, is that he wasn't, in, when he filed this petition, he was not being confined. Oh, yes, but I mean, imagine there are tens of thousands of petitions filed in the federal system, and, and I would think that judges when they're trying to look at those petitions, or the magistrate looks at them and says, what judgment are you attacking? He has to figure that out often for statute of limitations purposes or some other purpose. It, he'd look, go down, read that line, too. And he'd think, yeah, that's the judgment that's being attacked, and unless, of course, there's some indication it's something else. I mean, I've never heard of this before. Is there any uh, precedent on that where, where even though the petition refers to date A, and there's nothing in to suggest anything other than date A, because it turns out that there's a different judgment that, in fact, he's being held, which is date B, that the Court says, oh, you're attacking date B. Is there, is there any precedent that says that's how it's read? I'm not aware of any precedent. No, so this might be the first time. I, I don't see a reason why you wouldn't read the petition that's filed uh, in an ordinary way and say the judgment that's being attacked is the judgment that it refers to. Well, Your Honor, I think you have to say the judgment that's being attacked is the judgment by which he's being confined. I mean, he was — I don't know what implication this is going to have for uh, a lot of these petitions. Uh, I don't know one way or the other, but it might be there are thousands right now in the federal court which have date A and — Somebody's going to go back and say, no, it's really date B or something. I'm, I'm a little nervous about it. But if you're not nervous, you're the ones in charge. So. Well, Mr. Collins, isn't it your position that, number one, the only judgment that he can attack on habeas is the judgment that is extant at the time of the habeas proceeding, and that is the 92 judgment that follows the resentencing. But he may, in attacking that judgment, 
attack the premise of conviction, which occurred earlier. Exactly, Your Honor. And if he chooses to attack only the earlier conviction, which is the premise of the later judgment, he has simply, in, in effect, waived any other issue. And when he comes in later and tries to raise the issue that he could have attacked under the 92 judgment, he's, in effect, trying to split up his habeas. It's second and successive, and that's why he can't do it. That's exactly right, Your yeah. well, and, and, and further, I thought you, were, you told me that the petition goes on to indicate that the conviction, though affirmed, that the sentence was reversed, looking at 9B on Joint Appendix 35. Yes, Your Honor. Which, in, in other words, he, he details in the petition the subsequent uh, history that would have resulted in a new judgment. That's right, Your Honor. Next, I'd like to go briefly to the question that um, Justice Souter asked about. May the, I just uh, be sure I understand one, one thing about that? At the t- you're saying at the time he filed the petition on December 28, 1998, he had already had the second judgment had been already been entered by the Washington Supreme Court. It had been entered by the trial court, Your Honor. So he had his sentence. to the reversal of the. Exactly, Your Honor. And that sentence is at page, if you look at page um, three of the joint appendix, that is the second amended judgment filed in the Superior Court in Washington on March 16, 1998. And, and, and he was confined under the authority of this judgment. Of the second judgment. Of the second judgment. Why, why does it make any less sense um, to allow um, separate uh, habeas challenges to first the conviction and then the, and then the sentence uh, than it does to allow separate uh, appeals to this court from each of those? And once again, under the statute, we, are, we entertain appeals only from a final judgment. But you can bring here on certiorari the judgment of conviction, even though uh, proceedings for the um, uh, for the sentence are still in progress. Well, Your Honor, I think we're talking about the habeas corpus statute, and there the court has. A fortiori, and uh, we have a lot more control over over habeas corpus, which is an equitable remedy, than we do over what is it, twelve fifty seven, our jurisdictional statute. Uh, under certiorari, why, why, I don't, why does it make any, any more sense for habeas purposes to insist that he await uh, the final sentence before he, he gets review of, uh, of the premise for that sentence, uh, namely the conviction? Your Honor, I'm sorry. The, 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 I think that a couple things are being confused here. Right. The first thing is um, when is this a successive is this a successive petition and we would say it is because he filed the first one and then the second one now the question of whether he can get relief under the first under his first habeas petition does not depend on the entry of a final judgment in fact under the facts of this case the judgment was entered in march of uh, 1998 in december of 1998 he filed his first petition and in fact The um, first petition was denied in April of 2000 on the merits because it had been exhausted. Uh, He didn't have to wait for that because those claims were exhausted 
and because they were ripe, because they occur- the, the factual predicates had occurred in the trial court, then that was all that was required for him to bring those claims. He didn't have to wait for a final judgment. But you're saying he can't, he can't later bring any claim about the sentence. And that's because Congress in EDPA has declared that you have to bring all of your claims in your, at one time, and if you don't, then your petition should be dismissed as successive unless you well, go through the gatekeeping so that if this court So that if, if the statute governing our review had uh, an, an exhaustion requirement and a second and successive requirement comparable to the EDPA requirement, the case that Justice Scalia put would be exactly like this case. I believe it would, Your Honor. Yeah, okay. So I just briefly want to go to... Uh, Justice Souter, to where you started about the uh, consecutive sentence issue, um, we believe that consecutive sentence is quite different than from what exists in Blakely, and that in fact there aren't a, really additional findings of fact. I think you referred to about the crime, about the circumstances, about the character. In fact, in this case, the finding of fact. Uh, entered by the trial court in order to justify the exceptional sentence. This is on page 27 of the, of the joint appendix, uh, finding of fact 18. If the court were to sentence the defendant to a standard range sentence on each count run concurrently, he would receive the same punishment as if he had committed only the rape in the first degree. This would effectively result in the free crimes of robbery in the first degree and burglary in the first degree because he would receive no additional penalty for those crimes. That was That's a, I keep doing this. I'm sorry. Is that sufficient, uh, as you understand it, under the Washington case that your brother cited to me? I believe it is, Your Honor. Um, I thought the sentence, the, the law was that the sentence shall be concurrent unless, and the unless is that the judge makes an additional finding, the very same kind of finding that he would make in determining aggravating factor. Your Honor, the, 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 the sentence could have been run consecutively because of an aggravating factor. In fact, in this case, the trial court judge, in fact, had three independent and separate reasons for running the sentence consecutively. And two of those would be, um, I think we would say, aggravating factors that that, um, uh, the Blakely reasoning would apply to. But the Court of Appeals, when it considered this case, only looked at the free crimes element to make that decision. May you give me just a little more help on this? The finding number 18 that you referred to says in substance, if, if I just sentence him on the basis of the jury verdict, he won't get, he'll get a free pass on something. But it doesn't say that ju- the judge can, could, uh, could therefore increase the sentence. Well, that's it seemed to me there had to be additional findings to, to justify a result that he thought would have been a, a, a miscarriage of justice. No, Your Honor, I don't think that's right. You think that just having pointed out that it was that he would get a pass would have been sufficient to justify uh, consecutive sentences? I think it would, and the state supreme court affirmed this decision. Yeah, but he did make additional findings. It goes on, nineteen and twenty, and so forth are additional findings. Um, Your Honor, I think, he, I mean, I, I agree with you that he did make additional findings, but. 
if, he nowhere says they're unnecessary either. That's true, Your Honor. But if you take a look at the Court of Appeals opinion, um, which is at page uh, 52 and 53 of the joint appendix, when the Court of Appeals looks at the sentence, what the Court of Appeals says um, is, um, nonetheless, the sentencing court concluded that the multiple offender policy alone justified the exceptional sentence. Um, the, the fact that the defendant offender score for rape in the first degree is 16, thus invoking the multiple offense policy of the Sentencing Reform Act, standing alone is a substantial and compelling reason and justification for imposing the exceptional sentence here. That is to say that that would have been sufficient. Exactly. But in fact, that is not what the trial court uh, premised its, its, its decision on, because as Justice Stevens points out, it went on in findings 19, 20, and 21 about deliberate cruelty, sophistication, and planning, and so on. Having been through those findings, the Court says, from the foregoing facts, the Court now makes the following conclusions of law. It seems to me as though the trial court was basing its decision uh, on, on, on those foregoing facts uh, as, as well as upon finding 18, which was the, the, the free crime finding. Well, I think, the, I think that the um, — um, I guess what I'm saying is the fact that he might have — I'm assuming for the sake of argument that the, that the trial court might, on the basis simply of the free, free crime conclusion, have sentenced consecutively uh, is, is, is simply not the case that we've got, because he sentenced consecutively on that basis and on — cruelty, sophistication, and so on. Well, well, Your Honor, I believe that the Court of Appeals felt that that uh, consecutive sentence on the free crimes was standing alone would have been sufficient. I, 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 I don't did. want to cut you off. Can we just I'm have paid. one on the merits? One, I mean, the reason I want you to get to the merits, and I put in the, my dissent, I was trying as hard as I could to show why I thought this case was wrong. And I start the dissent by saying that uh, it meant what it said, and then I quote the two sentences that any fact, etc., cetera, uh, any fact that, uh, that increases beyond the prescribed ma- statutory maximum must be submitted to a jury. And prescribed statutory maximum, again, quote, means solely on the basis of the facts reflected in the jury verdict. Okay? Then at the end of the opinion, I say, until now, I would have thought the court might have limited Apprendi so its underlying principle wouldn't cause so much harm. Now, the next sentence, of course, I explain how they might have limited Appendi, but somehow that disappeared from the opinion, because I guess I couldn't think of it. So, so you're going to tell me now, I mean, I didn't say how they might have limited Apprendi, and I couldn't think of how they might have limited Apprendi, and they read Apprendi to read mean what it said. Now, you tell me the phrase I might have put in, but couldn't think of, that would have limited Apprendi. Well, Your Honor, I think that you could have said that the definition of statutory maximum is the traditional statutory maximum that was at issue in Apprendi. And, in fact, in the Apprendi decision, the Court specifically, I think, in response to Justice O'Connor's dissent, explained that Walton versus Arizona was still good law. And, as you know, in Walton, the jury would find somebody guilty of uh, aggregated first-degree murder, but they could not receive the death penalty unless the judge made additional findings in a hearing. And it seemed to say that the statutory maximum was death and that, in fact, the judge's findings would not take you above 
that statutory maximum. And I think that but that wasn't that overturned in Ring? It was overturned in Ring, Your Honor. But when you had lower court appellate judges looking at your decision in Apprendi and seeing the fact that Walton and Apprendi were consistent, it was logical for them to conclude, as virtually every single court did except for Kansas, that the definition of statutory maximum was the traditional statutory maximum um, that was uh, — was it logical for them to conclude it, or were they, were they expressing hope that the Court would draw a distinction which it had not drawn in the formulation that it gave uh, in Apprendi? I mean, it's one thing to say that if you draw no further distinctions, Apprendi requires a certain result. It's another thing to say but maybe they will draw a distinction, and we're going to predict that they will, uh, and hence not apply Apprendi. Weren't the, 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 the other appellate courts to which you refer engaged in the latter exercise, which I call the exercise of hope? I'm not sure that I would agree with that, Justice Souter, only because, um, I think as a Justice O'Connor explained in her dissent, there are two ways to read Apprendi. And one of those ways would result in upholding guideline systems, which are, I mean, now invalid because of Blakely and Booker, but really quite different from Apprendi because those systems invite in, involve what you would call guided discretion. That is, in Apprendi, if you wanted the uh, aggravating factor, if the judge found it by a preponderance, then the sentence was Enhanced. Okay, but doesn't that require drawing a distinction that Apprendi did not speak to? Uh, and isn't it still the case that it, I think Mr. Fisher points out that three times we repeated in Apprendi the formula about fact beyond fact found by a jury on the basis of which, etc., the range increases? Uh, isn't isn't the distinction which and I I'm, I'm, trust your recollection here that Justice O'Connor had in mind and that they had in mind? a distinction uh, which simply was not addressed uh, in Apprendi and would have been something new as opposed to merely an application of what was implicit in Apprendi. I believe it definitely would have been something new, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Collins. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. If I could begin by addressing uh, the issues that uh, you were just talking about. there was a distinction that the that the court could have drawn um, between Apprendi and Blakely, and that reasonable jurists uh, could have drawn and, and did draw. One was the formal distinction that uh, that you were discussing before with the state, uh, which was supported by Justice O'Connor's uh, proposing that as an interpretation in her dissent, and the majority not responding to that 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 uh, distinction was contrary to the rule but implausible, but in fact accepting, the, accepting that it was a plausible distinction and saying that uh, it still wouldn't have made a difference, uh, that, the, that the Apprendi rule still was important. The second, um, and in addition to that, that distinction uh, that Justice O'Connor drew there was consistent with the Apprendi Court's distinction of Walton. And you have to look at what reasonable uh, jurists could have, could have uh, interpreted looking at that decision at the time um, with those distinctions and what the Court said in Apprendi. But in addition to that, there was more than a formal distinction that, that could have been drawn between, between the system in Apprendi 
and the Washington Guideline System. That's the distinction that uh, we proposed in, in our amicus brief in Blakely. And it rested on the fact that sentencing guideline systems like Washington try to channel but not to eliminate the discretion that sentencing judge have to sentence within the otherwise applicable limits. And in the Washington system, the sentencing judge retained a significant degree of, uh, of discretion that reasonable jurists could have analogized to traditional sentencing systems that aren't constrained by Apprendi. Uh, the, facts that, uh, the facts on which the judge could rely to go above the guidelines were not specified as in Apprendi and as in Ring by the legislature, but it was a wide open set that enabled the judge himself uh, or herself to determine what facts um, the judge thought could justify a, a higher sentence. And in addition, the facts alone didn't trigger the higher sentence. The judge had to uh, look at those facts and make the additional determination that those facts rose to the level of substantial and compelling reasons that justified the higher sentence. In that respect, the judge had a degree of uh, sentencing discretion to decide what facts justified it and whether it was in fact justified. Now, um, of course, this court rejected those distinctions in Blakely. Um, but the question is whether a reasonable jurist could have accepted those, those distinctions and drawn a difference. And we Mr. submit Robert, that they could. Do you have a position on whether we have a successive petition problem here? We don't have a position on that precise, uh, on that particular issue here because it can't arise um, for federal prisoners. But let me explain why it can't arise for federal prisoners because perhaps that will give the court some guidance in uh, resolving the issue. Because in the federal system, it's, it's well established that the conviction and the sentence are part of a unitary judgment and that the, that unitary judgment doesn't become final until the conviction and the sentence um, have both been fully adjudicated. And that's, that uh, understanding is reflected in the language of 28 U.S.C. 2255, which is the statute that authorizes collateral attacks by federal prisoners. That statute authorizes attacks. It, it, what it authorizes is motions to vacate, set aside, or correct a sentence. And it, so it's clear from that that um, it's not authorizing uh, collateral attacks on a conviction independent of the attendant sentence. And I think that could shed some guidance here because 2255 was intended to be a parallel uh, and substitute remedy to traditional habeas for uh, federal for federal prisoners. Um, I, I would also uh, make a point uh, on the other uh, uh, sort of uh, preliminary issues that, that were being discussed on the consecutive uh, sentence issue that it's it's not only the 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 fact that uh, the judge uh, said that the multiple offense policy standing alone um, could justify the uh, consecutive sentence here um, and that the court of appeals relied on that in upholding that but the court of appeals went further because petitioner had made an, a separate challenge to and this is on page 52 and 53 of, of the joint appendix. Petitioner had made a separate challenge to the other two aggravating factors because petitioner argued that the district court wasn't allowed to rely on the, excuse me, the trial court, um, couldn't rely on those other two aggravating factors 
because he had not relied on them in the original sentencing, and this was a resentencing. And the uh, Court of Appeals rejected that challenge, and it rejected that challenge because it said the sentencing, sort, sentencing court concluded that the multiple offense policy alone justified the exceptional sentence. And then on page 53, it said the sentencing court did not rely on the additional aggravating factors for imposing an exceptional sentence. And so I think that is this that court — Is that true, in fact? Well, that is how — that is — that is the — I mean, I, I'm sure you're reading correctly, but is, is that, in fact, true? Because uh, having talked in as, — as I just read, read out uh, a moment ago, having spoken about uh, free crimes, aggravating factors, it says, on the basis of the foregoing facts, I now draw the following conclusions of law. The, the trial court said each of the three standing alone — was sufficient. But what the Court of Appeals said is, these other two have been challenged, but these other two are, we're, we don't, we're not going to deal with this challenge to these other two factors because they're out of the case. And so I think that this Court has to take the case as coming from the, from, coming from the Washington courts as if uh, what the courts essentially said is, those other two are not in the case anymore. So we can treat it in effect and, and I, 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 this may be the way to do it. We can treat it as, as the ultimate sentence. It was the, was the Washington Appellate Court, and that's what they said. Well, what the Washington Appellate Court essentially, they could have said, um, petitioner is right. Those other two aggravating factors couldn't be relied on. Um, and so we're relying on the standing alone. In other words, what they, what they chose to do is we're going to interpret what the trial court did as relying only on the one. Um, and that was the basis for responding to, to that claim of error. And I, I do think that the court uh, has to take this case as coming um, on th- that uh, on that basis. If I could uh, turn to uh, the issue of Blakely uh, retroactivity um, for a few minutes. Um, in addition to uh, the points that I made before um, about why Blakely was a new rule, um, I would also uh, submit that Blakely's not a watershed rule because it's not a bedrock rule that's essential to a fair trial. And rules are only bedrock if they approach the fundamental sweep and sweeping importance of Gideon, and Blakely doesn't have that kind of importance uh, for three reasons. First, the right to counsel pervasively affects every aspect of the trial, but Blakely affects only the procedure for der- determining the punishment of defendants who have already been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of all the elements of a crime. And second, a felony trial in which the defendants denied counsel is inherently unfair. But it's not inherently unfair to use the preponderance standard to find facts that determine the extent of punishment. And, in fact, the Constitution permits the use of the preponderance standard to find many facts that have as much or more impact on punishment as facts covered by Blakely. And those include facts that trigger mandatory minimums, facts on which a judge relies to sentence within a broad statutory range, and even facts on which a judge relies to sentence above the standard range in an advisory guideline system. And third, counsel so essential to a fair trial that deprivation of the right can never be discounted as harmless error. But this Court held in Requinco that Blakely errors can be harmless. And in reaching that holding, the Court expressly concluded that Blakely errors do not necessarily render a criminal trial fundamentally unfair or an unreliable vehicle for determining guilt or innocence. That conclusion seems to uh, strongly suggest that Blakely is not a bedrock rule essential to a fair trial. The court has no further questions. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Fisher, you have four minutes remaining. Let me say one word on jurisdiction and then turn to two comments on the merits. On jurisdiction, I think Mr. Roberts is right that this rarely happens in the federal system. It rarely happens in the state system. We can't find any other case 
where a petitioner has gone in naming, as the state would say, in effect, the wrong judgment and saying, I'm challenging this judgment. Uh, but what happened here was just that, that Mr. Burton went in and said he was challenging the 1994 judgment. And under this Court's Castro decision, when a pro se petitioner comes in and says, I'm doing one thing, in that case, making a motion for a new trial, it can't be converted into something else, which is a first habeas petition, without advising the petitioner. And here, not only was he not advised by the, by the trial court, but the state, in its own answer, which we attached to our reply brief, uh, agreed that he could challenge the 1994 conviction and said that conviction is final and he can challenge that judgment, the 1994 judgment. So it's... So it's way too late in the day for the state to stand up to you now and say this pro se petitioner should bear the burden of bringing uh, an improper petition. Uh, On the the merits, uh, I don't want to elaborate beyond simply just telling this court that if you look at the Hughes decision and you look at the Washington decision from this Washington state court, it's clear that an extra finding was necessary here, even if the only aggravator in play is the free crimes or clearly too lenient factor. Hughes makes it crystal clear that a judge needs to find, and I'm quoting, extraordinarily serious harm or culpability arising from the multiple offenses. And to the extent that the state stands before you now and quotes from parts of Mr. Burton's case where the trial judge did not explicitly make that finding, that only reinforces the strength of his habeas petition now, that under Washington state law the judge needed to make that kind of an extra finding, and the judge didn't do so. Uh, let me finally turn to the discussion about whether uh, this Court's treatment of Walton and Apprendi could have given a state judge a reasonable basis to distinguish uh, the system at issue in Blakely. We don't think it could because this Court didn't simply say in Apprendi that Walton stands. It explicitly said the reason why Arizona capital system, as we understand it, is okay is because it's nothing more than a system that is permissible under Williams against New York. It's one where the base on the basis of the jury's finding of guilt that the death penalty is permissible without anything else. And so the only disagreement between the majority and Justice O'Connor's dissent was as to the way Arizona's system worked. But any judge that would have looked at Apprendi would have seen the majority is telling us that a system is okay so long as the jury verdict itself allows the ultimate sentence. And that is exactly the kind of system that was not in place in Washington. And so a judge should have full, full well realized. And of course, as, uh, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, once it became clear to this court the way that Arizona's capital sentencing system functioned, this court had little difficulty simply applying the Apprendi rule and agreeing that that system had to be invalid, too. And just like the Blakely decision itself, not even the dissenters suggested that Apprendi dictated otherwise. Uh, If this Court has no further questions, I'll submit the case. Thank you, Mr. Fisher. The case is submitted.